Father, thanks so much for this day that you've granted to us. Open our hearts as we study the wondrous truths about you. And we feel so inadequate in doing this, Father. How can we describe an infinite God? We can't. All we can do is do the best we can. I pray that you will guide our discussions, our thoughts as we think about this. And just thank you for this opportunity in Christ's name. Amen. Um, today we're going to pick up with the Asadi of God. How many people saw the uh, little article I put out on the website for the sovereignty of God? I'm going to try to do that if we get into those you know, naughty topics. Um, I'll try to put something out there to hopefully make it a little bit clearer. It's kind of hard to make some of these things clear. You do the best you can. But um, So check back and uh, we'll have other things go up there. Um, today we're going to start talking about the Asadi of God. One of the little side things I want to mention before we um, get into the uh, class itself is uh, I was doing a little bit of research on the internet which is a wonderful place to do some research and I ran across a particular site um, from a particular group that uh, their theological spin on salvation in that is that anyone who at any point in their life at any time even for the fleetingest moment in time believes in Jesus automatically goes to heaven regardless of how their life lives after, how their life is lived after that. It's called uh, this particular site is called the Grace Evangelical Society. And uh, the basic spin that they have is uh, I, I was reading some of the articles there and uh, the guy says, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of people in heaven like Cain. He thinks Cain's going to be in heaven. Esau is going to be in heaven. Um, all kinds of these people. And uh, what happens here the, the issue that you've got to be careful of is when it comes to the doctrine of God, when it comes to theology proper, again, the, the, the error message or the error that we, we sometimes fall into is we take one attribute of God and we elevate that over everything else. All right? So when you take the grace of God and you elevate that over every other attribute of God, namely His justice, His wrath, His holiness, you come up with an aberration. You come up with a bad view of God. You come up with a God that is so gracious he'll save anybody and anybody who even makes the fleetingest acknowledgement of who Jesus is regardless of whether they actually believe in him as their savior or not. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in a later class. But the point that I bring up here is when you're out doing research, when you're you know, going to classes, when you're reading books, you want to be careful and make sure that you have a balanced view of God himself. Because if you get unbalanced, you're going to shoot down a path that's going to get you, get you into trouble. If you, emphasize his God, if you emphasize God's wrath more than his love, you get into trouble. If you emphasize love more than anything else, you get into trouble. You've got to have a balanced view of God. All right, so that's just a warning. One of the other things here is that as we go through some of these attributes that's coming up, you're going to see overlaps. For example, God's sovereignty overlaps with his omniscience, right, which overlaps with his omnipotence. So there are certain places where these attributes connect with each other and are a consistent whole. And again, let God tell you what he is like. Don't try to figure it out on your own because you'll come up with the wrong answer. Let God tell you. With that, let's look at aseity. Aseity is a fancy theological term that just means self-existence. It refers to God's self-existence. He depends on no other being for his existence. What do we mean by that? Every one of us in here depends on the existence of something else for us to exist, right? We depend on air. We depend on an environment. We depend on 
food, we depend on the things that we need to sustain our life, and if nothing else, who do we depend on? God, right? If there's no God, there's none of, all, none of us, alright? God is not like that. God does not depend on anything else for His existence. He is self-existent. We don't understand that, and you're never going to understand that, alright? We're never going to figure that one out. But God's existence does not depend on any other being other than Himself. You read John 5.36, Romans 11, Psalm 36.9, God is basically saying, I am alone, there's none other beside me. And Isaiah, the, he, he asks the question, I don't know of any other gods, I mean, I'm omniscient, and I don't know of any other god than myself. There's none other ones out there. I and I alone am God. He is self-existent. And the best expression of this is in God's name, I am. He's not becoming, he's not working it out, he's not trying to figure things out as he goes along. God is, is. He's the great I am. And Christ even reiterated this in John chapter 8 when the Jews asked him, well, who, do you, who are you? And Jesus said, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. And why did they do that? Well, he's claiming to be God, right? He's claiming to be the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And by the way, um, you're going to find, uh, if you read, watch the History Channel, Discovery Channel, go to liberal theological classes, almost universally they'll say, look, Jesus never claimed to be God. You know, they just made that up. The church wrote that back in. He, he was just a nice guy, but the last thing he did was claim to be God. Listen, he claimed to be God. And the Jews got that right. They knew what, exactly what Jesus was saying. They weren't mixed up on that like all the liberal theologians. They knew that he was claiming to be God. When he said, I am... Before Abraham was, I am, they knew exactly what he was saying. He is deity. He is the self-existent one. His existence depends on nothing but himself. And that's why secular theologians do not like the supplemental gospel of John. They can accept Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they don't like John because it is the gospel that shows Jesus as God. Yeah, if you go to the Jesus Seminar website, which you can do a Google search on that, look up Robert Funk and uh, the Jesus Seminar, um, they did an analysis, all the liberal scholars that he has working with him did an analysis of the Gospel of John. They came up with one verse that was said by Jesus. Everything else was made up. So that'll tell you how the liberal scholars approached the Gospel of John. Right. It shows Christ's authority, you know. Jesus and the God the Father and the Holy Spirit, they're all self existent. They all depend entirely on nothing but themselves. And because of that, God is independent. What do we mean by that? No one's telling God what to do. 
Alright? No one... Understand this. No one tells God what to do. Um, one of the dangers of TBN is you listen to some of these guys out there, they're ordering God around like God's their servant. God is not their servant. God is not your servant. You're God's servant. God does not do what you want Him to do because you tell Him. God is independent. God is independent in His thoughts. Who counseled God? Who, who, who gave God some counsel that He needed? Who made a suggestion to God? You know, God's up there trying to figure out, what am I going to do in the Middle East? And somebody comes up with some idea. Does God need our input on this stuff? No, He doesn't need our input. He knows what's going on. God is independent in His will. Who, who tell, we, well, we talked about this last week in sovereignty. Who's going to tell God what to do and what not to do? No one. God is independent. He's independent in His power. No one tells God how and what to do and how to use His power. And He's independent in His counsel. God doesn't need our input. God doesn't need us to give Him suggestions on how to fix problems. What God needs us to do is trust Him and to pray and get on with His plan because He has the right plan. God is independent. God does not need our input or our help. He's completely self-existent. God is also eternal. What do we mean by eternality? It goes along with the idea of omnitemporal. God is absolutely free from the boundaries of time. He was, is, and is to be. Now, one of the things that, that when you look at this, there's, and, and, and couple this with sovereignty of God, there's a good and a bad to this. All right? And let me explain what I mean by that. The good thing is, and we're going to talk about the immutability in a minute, the good thing is, since God is eternal, He is outside the boundaries of time and space, He's sovereign, that means that God doesn't change His mind about things. All right? What that means is a billion years from now, when we're in eternity, God's not going to say, you know, I've been rethinking this whole salvation business and some of you aren't going to like the outcome. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to alter his will. And on the, on the other hand, for those who are lost, there's never a time when God says, you know, this eternal health thing, I, I was a little too harsh. Um, I'm, I'm going to change this. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm going to take you out of hell. You're not going to be there forever. Uh, the, the thing here is God is outside the boundaries of space and time. He's eternal. He is immutable. His character never changes. And because of that, we can rest assured that when we get to heaven, God's not going to change His mind about us. Yeah. And of course, I believe that as well. However, in the King James, I'm not sure about other versions, which would say it, frankly, better. But in the King James, where it says, God repented that He made man. That's a good, that's a good observation. The question to ask there, and that, that, by the way, it's not only that, but it's in several other passages where there's hints about that. The way to understand that is not that God says, I made a mistake. By definition, can God make a mistake? No. no. So by definition, it can't mean that. It can't mean that he made a mistake. He can't. And, and for example, in the, in the Genesis chapter 6 there, um, the, the story of Noah and the ark, and it says God repented that he made man. The idea there, he's sorry. Um, Probably want, this is probably a bad analogy to use on this thing. But um, let, let's take the, when my wife got a little hearing ear dog, it was a wonderful little thing. But what did we know when we got that dog that's going to happen someday? 
It's going to die. And when it died, it was a very traumatic experience for us. I mean, I, it was really traumatic for us. And I think I took it a little bit harder than she did, unfortunately. Um, I didn't think I'd get so attached to a four-legged mutt. But I did. And I was sorry that we'd ever got her, in a sense, right? It wasn't that I would go back and change time and not get her. But, you know, it was painful. And, and I've, heard, I've talked to people that say, you know, we had a, de- a dog and it died and we're never going to have another one again because when we lost that, it was just so painful when we lost that dog. I think that's the way to think about that passage there. It's not that God would go back and change things. But God was hurt the way he knew it was going to turn out that way. But when it did, it didn't alleviate the pain that he felt to see his creation go the way it did, although he knew it would go that way. Alright? And so when you see about God repenting, it's not like God is saying, I made a mistake, I should have done something different. I should have, I shouldn't have done it that way, I should have done it this other way. Rather, it's, it's God, it's us peering into the heart of God. And, and I think we can relate to all of that. I mean, if you marry someone, there's coming a day when one or the other of you are going to be gone. Now, would you go back in time and not marry that person because you're feeling the pain of that separation? I don't think so. Um, at least I hope not. <laughs> um, hope you don't want to get rid of your spouse that badly. Um, but, but that's a reality of life. Yeah. There's also some verses that talk about um, what um, God is going to destroy Nineveh. Uh-huh. And the question there, and that's a good one, the question there, did God, and from the eternal grand scheme of things, did God change his mind? No. But what did it appear like to the Ninevites? That he did, from the human perspective. And by the way, you see this a lot in the Bible, the human perspective component. And by the way, what did God say? If you repent, I will not destroy him. Now, did God know they would repent? Sure, he knows everything. And because they repented, he did not destroy him. And see, that's, this, this is, again, when we, when we, as you work through theology, you're going to get to these little points here where you say, well, it looks like a contradiction. And so what you have to do is split yourself into two parts. One part sees it from the eternal perspective. Yes, God did not change his mind. God knew Nineveh would repent. On the other hand, there's the human perspective. From the human perspective, it did appear as though God changed his mind, although he didn't from the eternal perspective. Now, you totally muddle up on that. All right? You've got to keep, you've got to keep both of those in mind or you, you get all balled up in your mind. Yeah. 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 God said, set your affairs in order. You're going to die. And Hezekiah prayed and God gave him another 15 years. Now, from the eternal perspective, did God change his mind? No. But from the temporal perspective, what did it appear as? As though he did. And well, I think the hint here, folks, what you see here, I think the reason you have some of these in the scripture is it keeps us from the error of fatalism. We talked about that the other week, right? What is fatalism? What will be will be whether, whether I do anything or not, so why should I care? It doesn't matter what I do because God's going to do what he does and, and I'm not going to make any difference, so why does it matter? And throughout the Bible, God says, that's not the way you ought to be thinking about it. Not totally. <laughs> On one hand, yes, my plan will go forth 
and work. But on the other hand, you are responsible. We have choices to make. Just because God is sovereign and what will happen will happen still means I need to get out of bed and go to work tomorrow and do a good job because that's what God's called me to do. And as I wrote in my little, my little short uh, essay on the website, who knows whether God is using my actions to affect his eternal purpose, right? In, in the terms of Esther, why did, why did God make her queen of Persia? Well, we look back and say, well, it's obvious you know, why he did that. But, well, she didn't know about it, right? When, when the time came for her to go before the king, she didn't know that's why God made her queen. But she went before the king anyways. And God used her to affect his eternal purpose. And as Mordecai said, if you don't do anything, Esther, God's going to deliver his people. God's not going to let his people go, but who knows, maybe God made you queen for that very purpose. And if you go along with the plan, there's a blessing for you. I want to be a blessing, folks. I want to be a blessing to other people. The same thing when um, our exchange student came with us, came, came and lived with us. Um, she came as an atheist. She didn't believe God at all. She didn't even believe in God. East Germany, God's a crutch, right? Marxism. Opiate of the people. That's what she thought of God. And I remember praying for her, and, and I, I knew theologically that if she's elect, nothing I would do would ever alter the fact of her getting in heaven. Nothing I would say, nothing I would do would affect that one bit. But you know what? That's not how I looked at it. I looked at it as God has called me to be a witness, a testimony. He's called me to answer her questions. He's called me to talk to her. He's talked to me to, he called me to be an influence. And you know what was great? I was part of his eternal plan. And that's cool. Don't fall into this fatalism trap. Don't go down that route. All right? Understand that, God, that from God's sovereign, eternal perspective, He knows all that will happen. It's all laid out. But I am called from my perspective to do my part, to be obedient. And as I think I wrote in that essay too, for every verse that talks about the sovereignty of God, there's probably 20 that talk about what I'm supposed to be doing. And you can't separate the two. If you do, you wind up in theological error. You wind up either thinking that God will, that in fatalism or you wind up thinking that you can actually alter the eternal purposes and plans of God. So you've got you to walk in the middle of those two things. And we don't like doing that, but <laughs> that's the way it is. Um, when we talk about eternality, God is free from the boundaries of time. He's eternally bi-directional. What do we mean by that? He always was, always will be. Because he was there before time began. Now that's the tough one. We're going to live forever. You know that, right? But we weren't existing forever, did, or were we? There came a point when we came into existence. God had no point where he came into existence. He's the eternal is. He's always there. He's the eternal I am. God is also self-sufficient. What do we mean by that? God doesn't need anything or anyone to make him happy. He doesn't need them. You know, here's the wonderful thing. Does God, did God need creation to make him feel good? No, he didn't. Go think of that one. God, does, God did not need to create the universe as though he was lacking something. He was missing something. He had a deep psychological need. <laughs> God created the universe for one thing, Romans, or not Romans, but Revelation 4.11, for his own pleasure. He wanted to. Because of his own delight. Why does God do anything? Because he wants to, ultimately. He is free 
from any outside requirements for happiness or fulfillment. Now, can we make God happy? Think about this. Can, can you make God happy? Yeah, you can. But why can you make Him happy? Because He allows you to make Him happy, right? He allows that. Does God need that? No. See, a lot of Christians think that God's up in heaven just waiting with, just waiting for them to come up and talk to Him. Like He, he desperately needs them. Look, God doesn't need anything from us. But that doesn't mean we can't bring joy to his heart, can it? That, that, go think about that one. God doesn't need me, but he takes delight in me. And what's, what, is gonna, what is going to be God's eternal delight? Fellowship. Look at Revelation 21 and 22. What are we going to be doing for eternity? Praising God, fellowshipping with him, enjoying his presence, enjoying his company. And it's going to be an eternal joy to do that. And God is going to have joy in ours fellowship. So I, I mean, when I think about that, I just I, my brain stops working. To think that God takes delight in my company. Wow. Wow. I, I look at Enoch. One, he's one of my favorite characters in the Bible, Enoch, back in Genesis. And what do you know about Enoch? Because God took him home. Think about that. Enoch had such a relationship with God that one day God says, Ah, don't go home. Just come home with me. Just come home with me. I don't know what all that means. I don't know how that all works out. But Enoch's relationship with God was so vibrant and so so real and meaningful to both of them that God said, Come home. Be with me. I don't understand that, folks. I, I don't understand how God can take delight in being my friend. Think about that. I don't know how that works. Why does He need me? <laughs> I know how crummy I am. You know? And all you can do is, is thank Him and worship Him and praise Him and love Him. That's all you can do. <clears throat> but the Bible teaches that from the grand scheme of things, God did not have to create the universe in order to be fulfilled. He did it because He wanted to, because He would take delight and joy in it. Prior to, prior to creation, the Holy Spirit and, the, and Christ and the Father were in union in the Trinity, and they had the fullness of joy amongst themselves. And you know what's amazing in John chapter 17? What did Christ pray for? That they would know what? The same kind of fellowship. It's not that we're brought into the Trinity. Don't go there. That's the word faith people that want to make us into gods. No, we're not gods. But God, in, in, in essence, we're invited into the fellowship that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had from eternity past. Wow. I get to fellowship with them. Amazing. He didn't need to create it, but He wanted to for His own pleasure. His own desire because he wanted to. And, that, and by the way, that's the only reason. You know, I often say, you know, when you get to heaven and God, you meet God and God says, I'll tell you what, I'll answer any question you want. Give me any question, I'll give you the answer. You say, why did you create the universe? God said, I wanted to. That's your answer. 
There's got to be more. I wanted to. That's, that's, all the, that's all the answer we get. Be satisfied with it. God delights in us. and I don't understand that. God is immutable. What do we mean by immutable? He doesn't change. Now, now we've got to be careful here. What we don't mean by this is God is stagnant. Alright? We don't mean God is stagnant. When we say God is immutable, we're talking about His character. Alright? We're talking about His eternal character. God is just. Will, will that ever change? No. God's justice, God's attribute of justice will never change. It will never diminish. It will never be altered. God is a God of love. Will that ever change? No. God is a God of grace and mercy. Does that ever change? No. God is a God of holy wrath. Is that ever going to change? No. He hates sin. He hates it. He hates it. He hates it a lot worse than we do. <laughs> he hates sin. He hated it so much that it cost the death of his own son to get rid of it. That's how much God hates it. So when we talk about the immutability of God, we're not talking about God's... Um, God's nature changing. He, he can't change. His nature cannot change. What He is cannot change. Now, does God... Here's a deep theological question. Has God been changed by the fact that creation exists? By the fact that He created? Did God change in a sense because of creation? Let's think of Christ. Christ is the eternal God, right? You know, deity. He became fully God and fully man. And uh, Philippians chapter 2 says he's going to be given a name which is above every name, right? Did Christ learn something? Did God learn something by being a man? What did he learn? Obedience. What does Hebrews say? He learned obedience as a son. What do we mean by he learned it? Experienced it. It's not, it's not that God does not know something. That's, that's not where we're going. You've got to be careful. It's not that God doesn't know anything. But what did Christ learn? Hebrews says he learned obedience as a son. You've got to deal with that verse somehow. So what does it mean that he learned obedience as a son? He experienced it. He, he, he went... He, God knows what it's like to be one of us. Why did He become a man? We're going to get this in Christology. Why did Christ become a man? To die in our place. Well, that's something new. God never experienced death. Now, did Christ experience death as a man? Not as God. As a man, He experienced death. He would taste the death for every man. So, on one hand, God did... Change because God receives greater glory. What did Christ get? Did Christ get something after the cross that he did not have before the cross? Well, from his perspective, no, but from the creation's perspective, yes. What do we mean by that? Well, let's say, before the cross, what did the angels know about, God, about Christ, about the Trinity? What did they know before Christ died? What did they know? Intellectually, they had an idea of what? You're a holy angel. You're flying around heaven. 
you're talking about creation and all those humans down there. What do you know? What's some of your questions? Why doesn't God wipe them all out? I mean, look at them, right? What, what is this thing of mercy, grace? Why did God let that guy live and that guy die? What, what's going on here? Then after Christ came into the world and he was hanging on a cross, what did he say? I've got 12 legions of angels that are ready at any second to come and take me off this cross. And by the way, if you were a holy angel, what would you be doing? God, let me at him. Let me at him. Let me at him. What's going on here? Let me at him. And then when Christ died, the angels are looking at each other saying, what in the world is going on here? And then he rose again. And then they start seeing the divine plan of redemption working out. And what are the angels getting what are the angels getting a realization of? What God is like, right? Oh, they, they, they have an intellectual knowledge, but now what are they seeing? They're seeing the grace. And that's why, like, for example, in first Peter there. It talks about the angels' desire to look into the things. They don't know what it's like to be forgiven. And what you find is that in, in Philippians chapter 2, when Christ is exalted, He is given a name which is above every name. Who gives Him that name? The Father does. What is that name? Lord. And the creation, listen, the creation has a greater appreciation for God post-cross than they did pre-cross. Because they see what God means when He says, I am gracious, I am loving, I am merciful. Yes? I have a question about how we're supposed to think of the Son as the second person of the Trinity um, before the cross. Is it if is it that person that the Trinity was resurrected before the cross, they can't sense? Um, do you understand what I'm asking? Before the cross, this is a tough question. It's, it, ultimately, we can't all sort it out in our mind. But before the cross, the second person of the Trinity, Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He's eternal God. He always was full 100% deity. Um, after the cross, he became the God-man. He, in heaven today, Christ has a physical form. We will see him in a resurrected, glorified form. Um, did Christ get something after the cross he did not have before the cross? He got more glory. Because the creation and the angels, for example, us, and the angels seek God for all his, look, what did the cross give the creation a glimpse of? God's mercy and grace and justice and wrath. All of it, the, the cross is a central event of all of human history because you see all the attributes of God on display. And had the cross not happened, we would not understand certain aspects of God's character. It goes back to our question of theodicy. Why did God allow evil? To display his glory. To display who he is. Did that answer it? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm starting to understand what you're asking there. Um, salvation was available before the cross by believing what God revealed, whatever God said. Now, what was that ultimate forgiveness founded in? Cross. Now, did men know about that necessarily? No. What did Abraham know about the cross? Yeah, he just believed what God told him. He didn't know about the Messiah, about a cross, about crucifixion. about He didn't know all of that. He knew that God would take care of that. 
and he believed what God said. All right. So from the human perspective, the path to salvation has always been through believing in God, believing what God has said. It's founded in the grace of God. But the reason God can be gracious is because the cross was coming. And, and, and sort of the mind of God it always was, but in, from our perspective, there came a point in which it occurred. Yeah, from God, you know, for, for example, in First Peter, it says that Christ was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So in God's perspective, yes. First um, Peter chapter 1, verse 18, somewhere around verse 18, it said he was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Um, in God's mind, since he is outside of time and space, in his mind, yes, it was always a done deal. But from our perspective, there came a point in time in which the cross occurred. Um, there's a lot of thoughts on that. Some say that, you know, the Old Testament believer, when they died, did they go directly to the presence of God or did they go to a place called paradise? Um, I think more along the terms of paradise. Um, but his descent into hell was not a descent of, um, of being vanquished. It was a descent of victory. He went down to proclaim victory um, over the demonic forces. Um, unlike the word faith, the word faith crowd with Copeland, Hagen, and all them say he actually went to hell and suffered. That's a heresy. Christ was not suffered in hell. All right. He led captivity captive, and and I, I think that's the best picture to understand that. We'll talk about that, but yeah, I think that's the best way to understand it. All right. And again, when we get into these things, a lot of times you have to have, you have to put on two different hats. <laughs> You got your God from the all of eternity past hat that you put on and you see the grand scheme. Then you take that hat off. Then you step into time and say, okay, how did this work out in time? And both of those are fit together. Sometimes we don't know how they fit together, but they both fit together. All right? Um, and immutability means that God's character, who He is, His essential nature will not change. God is unchangeable in His nature. Um his dec- we're going to talk about His decree later on. His decree is eternal plan. That will never change. That will never be altered. Uh, God can't lie, right? I mean, there are some things that God can't do. He can't sin. He can't lie. He can't be unfaithful, right? He can't go back on His Word. He can't not be what He is. All of His essential attributes are in perfect harmony and they will never change. Yeah. And then what with that it shows the truly what sin was from those commandments, which is in Romans. Mm-hmm. And then that's why it shows just how much great anticipation we receive from Christ's self. Yep. And the more you understand just how bad you are, the more you appreciate God's grace. And one of our problems in in American Christianity today is we've we've sort of watered down just how bad sin is. It's really not that bad, you know, because we compare ourselves with each other. You realize that the one sin that Adam did, just the one, 
He ate the, the fruit. One sin. Look at the ramifications of that. Look what it's done. Just one. Yeah. And our problem is that we look at God and we say, well, man, he, he, he reacted pretty tough on Moses. I mean, you know, here's, here's boy, you know, God, chill out. You know, what are you doing? And, and the, the point here to understand is God did what was perfectly just by definition, right? And our problem is we look around. Here's, here's one of our problems in America today. We're so used to God's grace and mercy that when he actually does the right thing like, Strike somebody dead because of sin? We think, he's being un- what's wrong? God's being unfair. God's, God's being unkind. What do you all deserve? What do we all deserve? No. Death, immediately, right now. The next sin you do, you deserve to die. And the fact that you live is God's grace. And, and we need a picture of that. We like, to, we like to play God. You know, why you do this? Why don't you do that? Look, folks. Let God sort that out. Yes, sir. Okay, we're going to talk about that because if we get on that now, we'll be here till seven o'clock tonight. All right, but we will we will get to that. We will answer that question. That's an important question. You know, how many wills of God are there? Does God have a plan A, B, C, D, E, F, and G? You know, if plan A doesn't work, we'll try plan B. Um, the Bible teaches God has a plan A. There is no plan B. God knows what will happen. God understands what will happen. God does not ordain. For example, that Adam would fall. God knew Adam would fall. He didn't ordain it. He didn't make him do it. And there's a little bit of a disconnect in our mind. Well, wait a minute. You know, if he was all powerful, why didn't he just prevent it? Well, he didn't. He allowed it to happen. And we got to allow a little bit of that what schizoidal Christianity or, or perspective on our part. Okay. But God does have a will, a decree that is going to be worked out perfectly. Yeah. Yes. Right. 
And, and that's why God is infinite and we aren't. And there's going to, any, in any point of theology, you're going to bump up against this. God is so infinitely far above and beyond us that He gives us some of these answers, right? And then we look and say, huh? And we just, and that's the best you can do, alright? Because if we were able to comprehend and fully, if we were able to fully comprehend and understand all of this, we would be God, right? Well, we're not. And what, what does God tell us to do? Um, he says, trust me on this one. Trust me on this one. Do I have an eternal plan? Look, folks, I can take great comfort in knowing God has an eternal decree that's going to be worked out in spite of every machination of humanity. I don't have to worry about who's going to be elected president. I don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the Middle East. I don't have to worry about what's going to happen in Wall Street tomorrow. I don't have to worry about any of that because God has an eternal plan. I can take great comfort in knowing that God is in charge. I can take comfort in that. But, on the other hand, when I get up tomorrow morning, God has given me certain commands, certain principles for living. And He expects me to do those, even though He knows if I'm going to succeed or fail. He still expects me to do those. And here's the wonderful thing. As I follow Him in obedience, what, comes upon, what do I get out of it? Joy and blessing. Okay, do you want to be a joyous part of God's plan or not? <laughs> how, do you want to, how do you want to work it out? And, and again, there's, there's, you know, I don't want to beat a horse to death here, but there is these two perspectives that we've got to keep switching between and not, not, not go down one too far um, and get unbalanced. Um, God is the innocence dynamic, yet His essence is not. And one of the dangers of open theism and, and process theology we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks is this idea that God is changing as He goes along. He's sort of trying to figure this whole creation business out. He, he started this thing, He wound it up, it's going, and now God's reacting to what's going on. God's not reacting. God is in control. He knows. So don't, and that's one of, you know, that's one of the great things about being a Christian. When the world is going, you know, when they're freaking out around you, you can be calm. You know, 9-11, when 9-11 happened, you know what? Did God know that was going to happen? Sure He did. So as a Christian, how, could, how can we be a testimony to people around us? Well, we don't need to react. We don't need to be scared. We don't need to be afraid, right? Because God's in charge. Now, did God ordain that they do that? No, they didn't ordain it. But He allowed it to happen for His own purpose. And I can take comfort that God's going to affect His purpose throughout time. That's probably that's that's one way to look at it. God's plan is going to be affected regardless of what choice I ever make in life. But I don't have what the plan is going to be, right? He's not giving me a copy of that. So what does he call me to do? God says, "Look, I have a plan that's going to work out." But I'm, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to be obedient. I want you to trust me. I want you to live by these principles in the Scripture. And I'm supposed to do that. And when I do that, I get a blessing for that. Am I going to alter His eternal purpose? No. But I want to be part of His eternal purpose. And I guess that's 
That's the idea there. Do you want to cooperate with the plan of God or do you want to try and work against it? And if you work against it, you're not going to alter it. It's just going to be painful for you. <laughs> right? You want to be part of that. And I, I wish I could explain this better. It's, it, I can't. You've got two parallel tracks here and you just got to trust God on this one. Don't become fatalistic. Do what God's called you to do. And listen, folks, what's the wonderful thing about this is as we obey God, as we as we are obedient, as we do those things, we get to look back someday and say, wow, look how I was part of that. I was part of that plan. That's cool. And there's a blessing for that. Um, God's holiness. Um, if there's any attribute of God that's mentioned in Scripture, if you want to talk about a major attribute, it's this one here, God's holiness. All right? What do we mean by God's holiness? It's His other, utter otherness. The, Greek, the, the Hebrew word for holy means to cut, to separate. So what the Bible says when it's talking about God's holiness, it's saying God is not like anything you think of. God is holy. You can't... You can't as, as much as you try to compare Him to something you know, there's still a, a sense in which He is utterly unlike that. God is separate from. He's separate from His creation. He's totally distinct from that. It refers to His utter utterness. And the root concept here is just this third point here. God is separate from His creation. All right? God's not part of the creation. God, not, God is not the creation as in some um, uh, religions of monism where God is creation. God is separate from it. Um, and although holy is primary relational term, it refers to God's utter separation from sin. What do we mean by that? God and sin are completely, 100% totally opposite, separate. And in heaven, what do you see? You know, if we were to be transported to heaven right now and we were to look at the throne of God, what would we see? We see a blinding, brilliant glory. But what would be around the throne? Circling. Cherubim. And what would, they, what would they be saying? Holy, holy, holy. In fact, the number one attribute of God in Scripture is this one, holy. God is holy. That's the number one attribute. If you think about the, the number one mentioned attribute, God is holy. And because God is holy and separate from sinners, how can a sinner enter His presence? Well, God can't just say, oh, we'll just forget about it, right? That obviates what attribute? Justice. Can't do that. God can't just say, well, I'm going to send you all to hell because then you've got love working in there. So what do you have? You have the cross. The cross of Christ. Where God's justice and love come together. How can God forgive you because somebody paid the price for your sin? Christ took your place. And the Bible teaches that the only way that an unholy creature like me can enter the presence of a holy God is to be made holy by the blood of Christ. That's the only way I can enter God's presence. They are the closest beings to God. Uh, 
And, and both and both of them, and, and you're right, in both those angelic orders protect. It's not they're protecting God from creation, right? right, right. They're protecting creation from God in a sense. They're protecting us from entering God's presence. And remember when um, Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden? What was at the head of the garden? Two cherubim with flaming swords to keep them out of the presence of God. And in fact, the entire Old Testament, if you want to understand the entire Old Testament, basically you can wrap it up as this. God is holy. You're not. Stay away. I mean, that's Old Testament. Alright? Starting in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall, the theme of the Old Testament, God is saying, I'm holy. You're not. Stay away from me. And you've got the cherubim in the garden. The, the whole sacrificial system of the Mosaic Law, what was that all about? That was to show us that we're separate from God. You can't just go traipsing into God's presence and, and God said, oh, I'm so glad you showed up today. It doesn't operate that way. What gives me the right to walk into God's presence today? What gives me the right to approach the throne of grace? The blood of Christ. He made the way open for me. He split the veil between me and God. And He allows me into His presence. You just don't go in there because you're some nice guy that God wants, to, or nice person that God wants to be around. You come through the blood of Christ. And the entire Old Testament was a picture book showing how holy God was. You had the Holy of Holies, that place in the inner tabernacle. Who got to go in there? The high priest, once a year. And if he followed up, what happened? He died. You're dead. God is saying, I'm holy. Once a year you can come in, and this is how you do it. And Hophni and Phineas, what was their problem? Well, they figured, you know, out of, you know, God's not really serious about this. You know, we'll just, you know, we're, we'll sort of do it our own way. And God says, I'm not used to be treated that way. And God killed them both. You say, wow, that's pretty rough of God to do that. Why did he do that? God's making a, an example. I'm holy. You, and, and this is the thing to understand. Because God is holy, you approach God on his terms, not yours. You don't go and figure out, well, I, like Cain did. Cain said, well, you know, the, the fruit of the field is good enough. God says, no, it's not. You know what I expect. And you didn't bring it. Don't blame me that, that I didn't accept your sacrifice. You, you know what to bring. And Cain says, no, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it. And what do you have today? You have people throughout Christianity, they say, well, I'll just approach God on this way. You know, God will accept it. He'll, he'll be okay with it. No, he's not. God says, you want to approach me Here's how you do it. And now we're told you do it through the blood of my son. You do it through Christ. I can approach God because Christ paid the penalty. He opened the way for me to approach God. And if it wasn't for him, I have no access to God. Because God is holy and I'm not. So, this progressing with these theologies, how can Job 1 and 2 be explained where Satan was allowed to approach God? Well, remember, God is omnipresent, right? Sure. So wherever God is, there's sin around Him. Sure. The point is, when sin enters God's presence, there is a, there is a disconnection between that. God, God is not, you know, He cannot stand sin. So when Satan entered God's presence, because Satan is one of the created beings, Satan has access to talk to God, but Satan has no relationship with God, right? All right. Now, can I enter the presence of God as an unholy person? Well, wait a minute. Think about it. Could I enter the presence of God? Could I step into the presence of God as a sinner? 
Well, there, there's, a, there's a saying at work. You can do anything on your last day of work. Right? You can do anything on the last day of your life. Right? If I, as a sinner, I come into the presence of God in a sinful state, what happens to me? No man can see God at any time. You die. You're dead. All right? So can I enter the presence of God? Yeah, but it's not a very good experience. How can I enter the presence of God in a positive way without being melted out of existence through the blood of Christ? Through the blood of Christ. Yes? Oh, yeah. And that's a very important thing. Because here's the other problem with Uzzah. That was, his home was where the ark was placed. He was at the house of Amenajab, I think it was. And that's where the ark was stored for a while. So that ark that they had on the ark, to Uzzah, what had it, what had it become? It's a box in the corner. It's not holy. All right? God is saying, this is very important, folks. This, this will help you out in your spiritual life. God is absolutely holy. And because of that, you approach God on His terms, not yours. And do I have access to God? I sure do. Does God want me to come in His presence? He sure does. But I don't go into His presence thinking that, God, are you glad that I'm showing up today? Bet you've been waiting for me to show up. That's, that's not the way to enter God's presence. God is holy. And the entire Old Testament is a picture of God showing, I am holy. I have provided a way for you to come into my presence. And if you do that, it'll be a meaningful experience. If you don't do it that way, you're dead. Pick your, pick your way. Yes. And one of the things that we're going to find when we talk about the wrath of God, the wrath of God is not an emotion. We think of wrath as emotion, right? Somebody gets wrathful, mad, angry, starts storming, you know. That's not what it is. The wrath of God is an innate characteristic of God. It's one of his attributes. And the wrath of God is what happens when sin enters his presence. God doesn't have to work up anger. God doesn't have to decide to be anger. It's automatic. When you have sin in God's presence, His automatic response is that of wrath against sin. God is just as much a God of wrath as He is a God of love. And God is holy. And God says, if you want a relationship with me, and I want, and He wants a relationship with us, by the way. He said, this is how you do it. Because He wants us to acknowledge that we don't deserve to be in His presence. And that's really what it's all about, folks. If, you want to have, if somebody offends you deeply... 
all right, does a horrible thing, what do they need to do in order to have a relationship with you again? What do they have to admit? They did something wrong, that's all. Our problem is we don't want to admit that, do we? We want God to say, oh, come, you know, calm down, God. You know, let's not be too uptight about this. You know, I, I had a bad hair day. No, it doesn't work that way. All right? You approach God on His terms. And if you do, you have a relationship, a meaningful one, a vibrant one, a strong one. All I know is this, folks. When I come into God's presence, I come into His presence because Christ made it possible. And if He not made it possible, I have no right, none, to be in God's presence. I have no right to stand there. It's Christ who paved the way for me. It's Christ who paid the penalty. And I think when I come into God's presence, there needs to be an acknowledgement on my part. I think every believer, every true believer, will have somewhere in the back of their head an acknowledgement or an understanding, God, I don't deserve to be here and I'm here because of your Son who made the way possible for me. And I come before your throne of grace to find mercy to help me. Not because I deserve it, but because of your Son who made it possible. And one way to look at that, look at Adam's sin. Was it, how bad a sin was Adam's sin? In terms of degrees, not all that he did he murder anybody? No. Did he commit adultery? No. Nobody else committed adultery with, right? So he, they had one woman. It was kind of hard to commit adultery, you know. Um, no, it wasn't, you know, all those bad sins we think of. He didn't do any of those. What did he do? Disobey. Just disobey God, that's all. And see, our problem is, look, folks, we can't define our offense against God in our terms. It's in God's terms. And some people say, and it's interesting when you bring that up, some people say, well, you know, I'm not an enemy of God. You know, I sort of like God. You know, I don't have anything against God. That's not the issue. God is your enemy if you're outside of Christ. God is your enemy. And it doesn't matter whether you like Him or not. It's irrelevant. God is your enemy. That's not what we see today. No, it is not. No, it is not. All right, well, we're out of time. Um, hopefully answered some questions and probably raised a lot more. But uh, um, we'll hopefully finish up the attributes next week. Father, thank you for this time to be here. And again, we've only scratched the surface. Some of these things are very, very difficult to understand. Help us as we ponder them, knowing, Father, that for many of us, we might spend an entire lifetime and never get much closer. But in the end, Father, help us to just trust you. That's the big thing. To trust you that you know what you're doing. You have a plan. You have a purpose. And also to trust you in the fact, Father, you've given us certain things to do and that we would do them with joy and with delight and that we would strive to have a relationship with you, our eternal Father, not because we deserve it, but because your Son made the way possible for us. In Christ's name, amen.